Welcome to Fridays with Fintelect. My guest today is Dr. J. Michael Skiba, also popularly known as Dr. Fraud. Yes, Dr. Fraud. Michael is an international expert in financial crime, cybercrime, and professional development, and is referred to as one of the top crime fighters in the world. He has earlier worked for two corporations for 25 years in special investigations and management, and now runs his own international company focused on consulting, training, and speaking on financial crime, cybercrime, and professional development. He has worked on hundreds of projects across the globe, including Malaysia, Argentina, Singapore, Mexico, Germany, the USA, and the Nordics. Uh, Michael has also been a university professor for 15 years and is currently department chair of criminal justice at Colorado State University Global. Uh, he holds an MBA and a PhD with a financial crime focus and has also founded and manages Dr. Fraud Training Group. Michael is sought after as a media contributor and can be seen in many outlets, including NBC, ABC, London Telegraph, and Sirius XM Radio. He is also an instructor for the US ATF and a member of the Academic Council of the United Nations System. Michael is also an accomplished author and recently published a book called The Psychology of Fraud. And finally, he is also the host of DFTV, that is Dr. Fraud TV, a show dedicated to investing scams and fraud around the globe. So, Michael, welcome to Fridays with Fentelect. Great. It is great to be here, Shree. So excited to chat with you and, uh, and everyone else on today. So, great to be here. Fantastic. So, Michael, let's uh, start off our conversation talking about some trends, right? So, frauds and cybercrime have taken a massive leap during the pandemic, both in volume and sophistication. What are some of the major trends that you have noticed? Yeah, COVID, you know, the, the pandemic has changed so many aspects of our, of our ecosystem, personal level, professional level. Uh, but really some of the main trends that we're seeing is, is first off, the, the transition uh, to the workforce, uh, the, you know, the, the, the WFH, work from home. Now that has, that has created some increased stress on companies because, you know, they were forced very quickly to go to that model. Uh, but then when they were actually catching up, they realized that there were a lot of gaps you know, in, in data points and in security, uh, you know, for example, you know, VPNs, you know, we know a lot of the, the, the folks might, might be just chiming in from their own home Wi-Fi systems. And I mean, they're exchanging, you know, very, and dealing with very sensitive information from a corporate level. So corporations really should put a lot of focus on those, you know, the, those technology tools that, that they can use to actually help, you know, create a more secure environment. But second to that, the human element, you know, you're creating a different environment where you have people working on their home computers. You know, you might have, how do you, how do you mandate who's coming in and out of someone's house? A neighbor could come in and see something on a computer. So a lot of that too comes with training. So corporations really need to, to, to train their people on the dangers, you know, of, of what's, uh, you know, what's in that home environment. And also, you know, on video, we're all on video now. And we always, we always mention, you know, what's in your background? You know, take a look. Are there are there things, incriminating things, pieces of information, you know, uh, that that could be lying at a desk or behind you, uh, that could uh, that could actually be uh, be damaging. And I think the other main thing is automation. We saw just a catapult in automation on every level. You know, we saw people getting more familiar with touchless payments and having to use those platforms and more apps to just order food. Um, so so with that automation comes a lot of data. Um, so there's a lot more data going into the world. Uh, and as, as we all know, those data points each have a potential vulnerability. 
so the flip side of that is that also creates more breach points you know, and more security vulnerabilities as well. So unfortunately, we're going to see these continue uh, for the time being uh, until, uh, you know, we can develop really strong strategies uh, around that. Right. So, uh, Michael, we have, uh, you know, been seeing many ongoing initiatives by banks, financial institutions, even the police and law enforcement, NGOs, and of course, experts such as yourself on, you know, education and awareness creation about frauds and financial crime. Yet there are so many, you know, people and consumers who continue to fall prey to fraudsters and criminals. Are there any inherent characteristics that you feel make some people more vulnerable than others? You know, that's a great question. And we have done a lot of studies on this. And even in my career, my 25 year career, I would say I probably interviewed, uh, you know, two, 300 uh, convicted, uh, you know, fraudsters. Uh, and I think one of the most interesting things, trying to actually pattern the behavior, you know, we do have those, uh, those, those white collar criminals, we know the big names, the Bernie Madoffs and such, and those are a different, uh, a different psychological profile. You know, we look at those as, you know, we, we see those individuals are very egotistical, uh, you know, they're driven by, by pure greed. Now, what we see a lot, what I see a lot in the financial services sector is more a matter of opportunity. Uh, and what I mean by that is when you look at the statistics that, that you have employees, when you look at internal uh, employee and corporate fraud, 96% of those people that commit those frauds have no prior history coming in. So a company is very hard, you know, on, on an onboarding process to actually filter these individuals out from a, a paper standpoint or even a psychological profile standpoint. So that leads me to believe is that really it is a matter of opportunity. Being that, you know, when, when something comes across someone's desk, when an opportunity arises, you know, it's really a matter of what our personal threshold is. And, and it could be our personal threshold at that moment. Uh, so let's say someone, you know, when they were onboarded, didn't have the same, you know, uh, you know had, had a strong financial status personally. Well, a year later, uh, they, they had some, you know, family issues. Maybe, uh, you know, they had some, some other financial stressors or problems come up. So, so their threshold is going to be lower. So maybe if that same opportunity were presented, uh, that they would engage in it at that point in time. But in almost every single fraud store that I've interviewed and in every case I've had, it really almost starts with that opportunity. You know, you, you have a few people that are looking for those opportunities ahead of time. Uh, but I think financial institutions do a good job of identifying those individuals. It's really the ones that kind of fly under the radar, we call it. Uh, and it's very disturbing. So, so it, it's usually what we call a push and a pull factor. You know, you have something pushing you maybe towards engaging in some sort of suspicious behavior, uh, but then you also have a pull, some, some gap somewhere you see an opportunity, whether it's in a vendor relationship, whether it's a, in a payment process. Um, you know, so, so with that balance is usually where we, we find, unfortunately, that, that vulnerable population. Right. So uh, let's speak a bit about, about regulation, uh, Michael. You know, mm -hmm. do you think the current regulatory framework is actually adequate to create the right deterrence for fraudsters? Uh, and if not, what more is required, would you say? So the uh, regulatory environment, in, in my opinion, really needs to, to amp up efforts. And, and the reason I say that is because when you look holistically, you know, when you look at, at different countries, uh, even different regions within countries, you can almost predict when you look at the statistics, what areas have stronger or lower regulations. You know, we see this across the board. 
I've seen studies, I was recently involved about maybe five years ago with a study on the West Coast in the United States. And what they did was they just took one little area uh, and they decided to devote a ton of effort into prosecuting white collar criminals. What they found immediately within about, I would say six months was they had a reduction of about 20% uh, in, in the cases that were reported at that period of time. So what that did was that acted as a public deterrent. You know, it deterred those criminals that were involved, of course, in the investigation. But what it did was it sent a message uh, out that, you know, that this is really not worth the risk. Uh, and that's what these types of criminals actually kind of embark on. You know, they, they, our research shows that they are more cognitive than other criminals. So what they do is they can actually make a conscious decision between right, wrong, risk, reward. So if they see that reward very high, which we, we know it's, it's, you know, financial institutions, we're known uh, for having uh, money, uh, you know, but, but second to that, the risk, if the risk is very low, you know, if there's no prosecution or very low punishment, uh, then that's actually going to draw them directly to it. But that regulatory environment is absolutely key uh, in, in developing those, the, those, that strong deterrent. Uh, but second to that, what you also need is you don't just need laws, but you need support behind the laws. Because so many times we've seen, like, for example, COVID, the vaccine cards, perfect example here in the United States, they realized there were fake vaccine cards floating around. So what they did was they, of course, it was a CDC document. So they made it a federal crime. This was back in April. Uh, now, that really went kind of untouched, if you will, until recently uh, when some politicians had announced that they, were re they really wanted more of a push on the federal agencies to investigate and prosecute these crimes. Uh, and almost immediately, so that announcement was made a couple weeks ago, we just saw the first few arrests come through with, with using fake vaccine cards. One was a pharmacist in Chicago, and the other was a couple in Florida that tried to travel to Hawaii. So it's not just the law itself, but you also have to have that support behind it. So I think in our space, if we can slowly, you know, start with those success stories uh, and, then, and then work outwards, you know, get the, the buy-in from the prosecutors and law enforcement, I think that will absolutely help. Right. So, uh, you know, speaking about uh, banks and financial institutions, you know, what would you say are uh, the gaps uh, when it comes to their response to, uh, you know, financial crime? Uh, how do you think these banks and FIS can actually drive more synergy uh, between their different units, you know, whether it's AML, fraud, cybersecurity, or other business units? I think this is one of the big challenges I see, especially, you know, now that organizations are moving towards more automation, more technology, we lose a lot of that human element. So we rely a lot on those technology tools and platforms to run the systems. And what happens there is you lose that personal uh, contact and those, those personal connections. Uh, so what companies really need to focus on is, is right now there is just, uh, you know, there's a lot of focus on those, those IT. There's, there's so many companies coming out with, with great programs and apps and things to use and make our lives easier as a company. But really, you know, one of the things that, that I recommend is, is go back to basics with that human element because, you know, you still need a, a human element, an expert in the industry to run that platform and to run it well. Uh, and one thing I, I see missing is, is what I call the feedback loop. That is, once you, you know, once you have an automated process in place, uh, you know, that could be across the entire ecosystem of the organization, um, it's, it's very rare to see that the results from that uh, are disseminated amongst others within in the company or the department. It usually stays right within one or two 
uh, people or even a small unit. And I think that's very important because what it does is those results create uh, kind of a sense of synergy and cooperation with each, with each other. Uh, because what I'm seeing now is I'm seeing more silos between these organizations. Uh, so what I recommend is, is quite simply creating a task force, um, you know, where you, you maybe designate one person from each department or each unit. And uh, it doesn't have to be something very, um, you know, uh, resource involved. I mean, this could be something where they just have a quick meeting, a coffee meeting once a month, but they're just talking about what is going on in their worlds. Uh, because a lot of times we see one department's doing the same thing as another, uh, and they're using, you know, double resources. So I think pulling those things together could absolutely, uh, absolutely help. But, and again, I, and I see this as very disturbing because we're going more and more towards that automation, um, you know, and, and this could be, uh, you know, this could be very detrimental to a company if they don't fall back and focus also on that human element, which is very, very needed. Right. So, you know, that brings me to my next point. You know, you spoke about the human element. Uh, you know, so regulators are placing a lot of emphasis on the right culture, right, for improving the effectiveness of anti-financial crime measures. Uh, you know, what are your views on how a right or you know, first, what is the right culture and, you know, how should it be promoted? Yeah, the, the culture within a company is absolutely key to, to really uh, a successful organization, successful, effective, and profitable organization. I have seen it so many times where, where companies rely on, on technology platforms and the, uh, you know, the new shiny nugget that comes out, but it's really the people, the people that run that business, the employees. Um, and, and, you know, we want to make sure, we've done a lot of studies, especially uh, on millennials, you know, we, we because they seem to be happier uh, than, uh, than, than some of us in, in maybe uh, the, the older demographic groups. And one of the reasons why is because a lot of those companies that focus, let's say Google, Google does a really great job of, of keeping their people happy. Uh, and, and you look at their turnover retention, it's, it's very good. And, and one of the things that they do is they focus a lot on a sense of community, you know, creating a sense of community within the, the unit, but within the organization, people are proud to work for that company. You know, they give out t-shirts, they, you know, and I know that sounds like, you know, from a, a preventative standpoint, very, very basic, but when you create people that want to work for you, they want to help fight fraud, they wanna, you know, whatever your mission is as an organization, they're, they're not gonna take advantage of those opportunities per se, uh, to, to take advantage of the company from a financial perspective. Um, and and what, what I see from a psychological standpoint uh, is that it, in a lot of these cases, you know, when I fall back on sociological theories, a justification, justification and rationalization is, is a big, big theme and a lot of fraud that I see, a lot of fraudsters that I've interviewed. Uh, and they'll, they'll actually justify their actions in a certain way. There is a direct relationship, if you look at the statistics, between a disgruntled employee and their propensity to commit some sort of internal fraud, or even, uh, even padding an expense account. This is very, very common. But when that comes directly from the top and slowly trickles down, uh, that will grow eventually because those small frauds, as we know, grow into bigger frauds. So a small expense account padding this week could grow into something larger, larger, larger. We see this, unfortunately, all the time. But that culture has to be created from the top. So one of the things we recommend is, is create that strong code of conduct uh, and revisit it. You know, it's very often that we just talk about ethics when someone's hired, but then it's not even part of an annual process review. So I recommend, you know, revisiting that, you know, on, on a regular basis, talking about ethics and how important it is, uh, showcasing maybe examples where 
someone you know did engage unfortunately in some sort of uh, internal fraud and uh, maybe showcasing the, the punishment that, that ensued from that, uh, but also how it damages the company itself. You know, when someone pads an expense account, what that does, that actually takes from the bottom line of the company. So it could take out of profitability or pensions or profit sharing, uh, you know, or bonuses or even resources. Uh, so I think that's really important that companies kind of share that as well. But one thing I've seen is, is really that sense of community. It's so important. I see that at the collegiate level, you know, we, we try to create a student atmosphere where students feel a part of something, a part of a mission, um, and, and creating a mission statement along with that code of conduct uh, is also important because it keeps people, um, you know, working together towards a common goal. Right. So in closing, um... Michael, you know, do you think, uh, you know, lack of information sharing in fraud, so let's say, you know, real-time sharing of data on criminal tactics or identities of fraudsters, you know, things like that, is this creating a hindrance to the detection and prevention of fraud? Uh, are there any examples of successes that you've seen that you think, you know, should be highlighted? Absolutely. I think this, this is one of the biggest challenges is information sharing and lack thereof. Uh, and it, it's, it's unfortunate because it is kind of part of the, the DNA of our industry because we you know we are private sector companies and we're intertwined with the public sector as well, trying to maybe prosecute and, and, and investigate. But the issue is, is as a company, our job is to, is to be profitable. Uh, and, and, and when we share information with other companies, we want to make sure we're not sharing proprietary information or that secret formula. Uh, and that's where companies uh, are very hesitant on releasing data. Uh, and, and oftentimes I've seen where even when companies do agree to share data, it's scrubbed to the point that it's, it's, it's useful, but not meaningful per se. Uh, and it, it's really difficult for researchers like myself and people that do training when, when we don't have accurate data. Um, you know, we think to ourselves, well, if you don't have data, how can you actually drive, uh, you know, good anti-fraud efforts and preventative you know, tactics. Um, it's hard. It's hard to actually predict because that's all we're really doing now. Um, you know, we can't really get a good handle on the issue. Um, so, so one of the things that, that has been done before is to create um, like a sense of immunity uh, between companies if they are sharing information. There's certain groups maybe that kind of act as a, as a liaison where they'll take information uh, and then, you know, they'll house it themselves and then just kind of study it. Um, that's one thing we do on the academic level. Um, you know, we, we don't release proprietary information outside of a research study. Um, and that, that is one way, kind of a workaround uh, to circumvent the sharing of information. But unfortunately, we've seen it on, in so many different areas, so many different levels when, when information is not shared. Um, it's just very, very dangerous um, because criminals, quite, quite frankly, they can operate across all circles. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been at a training session and I've mentioned a case uh, that I was dealing with. Um, this was after prosecution and two or three other people have mentioned that they had some dealing with that case and, and hadn't known prior to mine. So um, these are things that, that bother me, you know, as someone in this industry for a while. Um, but, but I think that the, the idea, the solution is to maybe partner with some agencies that can provide immunity uh, to us um, and, and also try to, um, you know, try to still you know, share as much as we can without, you know, maintaining of, of uh, you know, corporate intellectual property uh, and also some meaningful data because it will actually, it will 100% benefit a company uh, by just releasing some sorts of, some sort of data that researchers can help, you know, to further, further the field.
Right, Michael. So just before we end, uh, I just noticed your background is a book there. Is is that your book? Uh, I can't read it, the title from you very well. Is is that the psychology of fraud? Yes, yes, sure is correct. Yes, I um, I finished that about uh, 2017. I published that, um, and it's really based on my work. I, you know, it's interesting because as someone that I've operated, uh, you know, when I wrote it, I, I had two decades uh, in the industry, and I always it always bothered me. That's what you know. That's kind of how Doctor Fraud was born. Is um, you know, why do these criminals commit these crimes? It, 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 you know, I saw it right in the trenches on the streets when I started as an investigator in New York uh, back, you know, 25 years ago. And it always bothered me when I, when I put on my academic hat, uh, I, I, I had resources there to research. Um, so the, those two kind of things came together. And that's, that's what the book is based on is, is kind of uh, why these type of criminals do, uh, do what they do. Right, excellent. So, Michael, on that note, thank you so much for joining us today. It was fantastic speaking with you. I'm sure our community is going to learn a lot from what you said. And I hope some of them go and uh, look up your book as well uh, on online. Great. Thank you, Shrisha. It was fantastic meeting you and uh, speaking with the group. Thank you so much. Super. Thanks, Michael.